0: Good morning. I'd like to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. I've entitled the message, The New Sinai. And as we go through these verses, uh, I want you to see that behind verse 14-18, through He is drawing from the story in Exodus, chapter 33 and 34, where God, in the context of giving Torah on Mount Sinai for a second time, is revealing His character to Moses. And there's a connection here between Lazarus... Word and Judaism's Torah that climaxes in this section, so hopefully you'll see how how he draws on Exodus as he goes through this. Now we've been looking at this prologue in the Gospel of John for several weeks, and foremost among the teachings that the author wants us to see in this prologue is the doctrine of the Incarnation. Now we've been talking about that for a while. Um, hopefully You get an idea of what's going on here with this doctrine. It's extremely important for us to understand. In the Incarnation, the Lord fulfilled Scripture from the Tanakh which taught that the promised Messiah would be human and yet the promised Messiah would be divine. He taught His humanity as the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David. Yahweh speaking to David said this, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you, who will come forth. So one of his descendants, a human person, coming from the line of David, will be raised up after you, who will come forth from you, I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So Solomon's here, but it's greater than Solomon that he's talking about, okay? I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. So the Tanakh taught that He would be of human descent, but it also taught that He would be divine. Micah 5.2 says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth to Me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. He was from eternity because He was divine. Now at the Incarnation, God the Son... The second person of the one triune God was forever joined to true humanity. And this joining together has been designated as the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. The Council of Chalcedon put it this way. Our Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now they didn't use the name Yeshua, but they didn't use the name Jesus either. Okay, so I figure if they can change it to Jesus, I can change it to Yeshua. All right, our Lord Yeshua the Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, in two natures, inconfusably, is that a word? inconfusably, unchangeable, indivisible, inseparable, the distinction of natures by no means taken away by the union, but each nature being preserved and concurring in one person. So, we've talked about that. We've got two natures, yet we have one person. Not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Yeshua, the Christ. I think that's a pretty good definition of the hypostatic union. J.I. Packer defines the incarnation and in hypostatic union. Bethlehem was God made man. The Word had become flesh, a real human baby. He had not ceased to be God. He was no less God than before, but he had begun to be man. He was not now God minus some elements of his deity, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. He who made man was now learning what it felt like to be a man. Our text Says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Wayne Grudem says this of the incarnation it is by far the most amazing miracle of the entire Bible, far more amazing than the resurrection, more amazing even than the creation of the universe, the fact that the infinite. Omnipotent, eternal Son of God could become man and join Himself to a human nature forever so that infinite God became one person with finite man will remain for eternity the most profound miracle, the most profound mystery in all of the universe. Can you picture it? I think He does a good job there drawing out the picture of the Word becoming flesh. God leaves heaven Joins Himself to true humanity forever. Now, we've been looking at this verse for the last couple of weeks, but yet we haven't really looked at the verse. So today we want to get into the verse and, and deal with verse 14 through verse 18. And actually, we're going to end the prologue today. This word of verse 1 is the word who existed. This word in verse 14 is the word from verse 1 who existed before eternity. He is, if this is the Word that was with God. This is the Word that was God. The eternal Word who existed, co-eternal with God before anything came into being. That's the Word he's talking about. The Word from verse 1. Now he says He became flesh. He takes on humanity. Now, this is the last time that Lazarus is going to use the, the title, The Word, for Yeshua in the Gospel from now on. From now on, he's going to restore, refer to Him by His historical name, Yeshua. Yeshua. He says, the word became, this is ginomai, it doesn't mean the word ceased to be what he was before, rather to his eternal deity he added perfect humanity. And then he uses the word flesh. Now this is the Greek word sarx, which sometimes is used in a moral sense, you know, in the in the book of Galatians, in the book of Romans, Paul talks about the deeds of the flesh, and he's not talking about good things there, okay? But sometimes it's used just in a physical sense, and, and that's how it is here, it just means humanity. He became a human being. Romans 1.3, it says that Yeshua was the son of David according to the flesh. In other words, humanly, he was born of the descendant, a descendant of David. And that's all he means here. He became a human being. Now, but he uses this word sarks because I think it would really kind of be a slap in the face of the Greeks. Because the Greeks had many legends of gods coming down among their human subjects, pretending to be human. They would frolic and play with their subjects until the charade was over. Then they pull off their mask, revealing that they were not mere mortals at all. See, for the Greeks, the idea of becoming flesh would be unthinkable because of their negative view of the flesh. To them, flesh was evil. All flesh was evil. Spirit was good. Flesh was evil. So they could not comprehend the fact of God taking on flesh. And they lived with this kind of dualism. Spirit's good, flesh is bad. Well, Yeshua did not masquerade as a human being. He became one. It seems probable that Lazarus was confronting opponents of a docetic type. Uh, People who were ready to think that Yeshua of Nazareth as the Christ of God, but who denied the reality of his humanity. Now, we've talked about all the people who denied the deity of Christ. Well, the docetics weren't denying the deity, they were denying the humanity. All right. He wasn't really a man. He just appeared to be a man. He was kind of a phantom, because since God could not on their premises defile himself with real contact with humankind. The whole of the life of Jesus was only an appearance. So Lazarus strong term here, sarks, doesn't really leave any room for the docetic idea. He is clear on the deity of the word, but He's just as clear on the genuineness of the humanity. And like we said, you can't take away one or the other people without destroying who Yeshua was. He was the God-man, the theanthropic person. We have to understand that. Very important. All right. So He said this word became flesh and it dwelt among us. If you're reading this in English, you just you miss all the good stuff that's here, okay? First of all, I think that John Eleazar would be speaking in his original language, which was Hebrew. I don't think he thought in Greek. I don't think he wrote in Greek. And I think there's a play on words here. In Hebrew, the verb to tent, you know, to pitch a tent, to live in a tent, was Shekhan, which was a cognate of the word Shechanah, which was used in the Tanakh for the glory of God. The root idea of Shechanah was the presence of God. That's the meaning of glory. So the Greek word for dwelt here, which is skenao, which would mean literally tabernacled among us. This invokes the command to Moses back in Sinai. When we think of, you know, the word of God becoming flesh and then tabernacling, pitching a tent among us, and then the glory being seen, we've got to go back into the Tanakh because the glory of God was seen in the tabernacle. In Exodus 25, 8 says, Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Now, the Septuagint, the Greek translation says, That I may be seen in their midst. That was the whole thing of the tabernacle. And that's what blows my mind as you're going through the Exodus and they're grumbling and complaining and, Moses, why'd you do this? There was a pillar of fire by leading them by night and a pillar of cloud. The the glory of God, the Shekinah was leading them on and they griped to Moses. The word seen in the Greek that I may be seen in their midst derives from skene, which means the tent or the tabernacle. And it doesn't necessarily imply a temporary dwelling. It just meant He came to dwell. It alludes to how the Lord had been present in the tabernacle, in the temple, and how He was expected to return. Yahweh met with them in the tabernacle. And John Elazar is presenting Yeshua as Yahweh. Again, we see that. Because Yahweh dwelt in the tabernacle. And He is connecting that here over and over. Listen, He is drilling this home. If you miss this, something's wrong, okay? He wants us to see Yeshua is Yahweh in the flesh. It was Yahweh who dwelt in the tabernacle. Exodus 29, 42. It shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the doorway of the tent of meeting before Yahweh, where I will meet with you to speak with you there. All right? Yahweh is going to meet with them. He's going to speak with them from the tabernacle. I will meet there with the sons of Israel and it shall be consecrated to my glory. Now, God's glory was once displayed by means of the tabernacle. We see that in Exodus 40, He erected the court all around the tabernacle and their altar. Thus Moses finished the work. He's finishing, establishing, putting up the tabernacle. He says, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. This is a visible glory. They're seeing this display of light. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because of the cloud had settled on it and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. So when Moses had completed it, this cloud covers it and the glory of God filled it. Now the Septuagint has skene each time here for tabernacle. So too when Solomon consecrated his temple, we see the same thing in 1 Kings 8. It happened that when the priests came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of Yahweh so the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of Yahweh filled the house of Yahweh. The cloud filled it and they couldn't stand to minister. They couldn't even be there because of the glory of God. And the glory of Yahweh filled that house. Can you imagine being there and experiencing the, just the visible sign of the glory of God? Now, after the temple had been destroyed in 586 B.C., Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, not in your Bible, in the Catholic Bible, good historical stuff, 2nd Maccabees says that Jeremiah took the skene, the tabernacle, he took the ark, and he took the incense altar, and he hid them in a cave. All right? And he said they would be Restored. In a future time, Maccabees says this, no one must know, this is Jeremiah says: no one must know about this place, the place he's them, hid them, until God gathers his people together again and shows them mercy. This is talking about in the new covenant, God brings the people back together. At that time, he will reveal where these things are hidden and the dazzling light of his presence will be seen in the cloud. In other words, the glory will be seen again as it was in the time of Moses and on the occasion when Solomon prayed that the temple might be dedicated to, in His holy splendor. So, now this text in Maccabees was written around 100 to 50 years before Christ. So the story was known at the time of Yeshua. They were familiar with this story. They knew, hey, the glory is supposed to come back. Yahweh and Eskene were linked to the glory cloud and they figured they were going to return. Because, you know, if you're reading through Ezekiel, you come to Ezekiel chapter 10, and the glory leaves. The glory of God leaves the temple and goes off. But in Isaiah 45, 1-5, Ezekiel talks about that the glory will return through the eastern gate. The glory will come back. But what we have to understand is during that time of Yeshua's life, there was no glory in that hit temple of Herod's. What was in the Holy of Holies of Herod's temple? Nothing. It was empty. Empty. Yet the high priest went in there once a year. What did he do? Ah, There's not much to do in here. I can't sprinkle blood on the altar. There's nothing here. The mercy seat was gone. The throne of God that dwelt there had been disappeared since the Babylonian captivity. So it was gone. So they were just going through the motions. There was nothing there. The glory had departed. But guess what? The glory came back on the scene in Bethlehem. And that's what John's talking about. Yeshua is the fulfillment of this vision of Ezekiel. For John Elazar, the Skene of the word, is Yahweh with His glory coming again to the holy place in human form. Solomon thought it incredible that God would dwell on the earth. Remember when he built a tabernacle, 1 Kings 8.27, he says... But will God indeed dwell on the earth? I mean, that's you know, it's hard for him to imagine. Behold, heaven in the highest, heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. But that's precisely what he did in Yeshua. As God's presence dwelt among the Israelites in the tabernacle, so he lived among them in the person of Yeshua. It says, and we saw his glory. Now, glory is a term reserved for God. It refers to His weightiness. Now, we're not talking about in a physical form here. Okay, worthiness. His honor, His praise. In Yeshua, the glory of God is seen and known. The same glory that filled the tabernacle, that filled the temple, the same glory that caused the seraphim to cover their face and cry, Holy, Holy, Holy! that same glory that caused Isaiah to feel like he was going to be extinct in his presence, we have come in the incarnate Word of God. By using the word that was used of the tabernacle, coupled with seeing Yeshua's glory, John wants us to make some connections. He wants us to see that this glory we're seeing is the glory of God. In Exodus 33... You remember the story Moses said, I pray, show me your glory. This is a request to Yahweh. I want to see your glory. What did Yahweh tell him? He says, well, you can't see my glory. You can't see my glory and live. But watch what he says in Exodus 33, 19. And he says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you. Now, when he says, I'm going to proclaim my name, he's not talking about Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. He's not talking about the name Yahweh. He's talking about his character, his person. His name is the embodiment of all of his attributes and who he is. So Moses says, I want to see you. So what does he do? He talks about his attributes. He says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. So what is God's glory? It's the embodiment of all his attributes. And that's what he's showing Moses. And God's glory causes worship. Look at Exodus 34. Yahweh descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of Yahweh. Then Yahweh passed in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding abounding in loving kindness and truth. Hang on to those two words. We're going to come back to them. John talks about those two words. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. I like that attribute of Yahweh. (laughs) Okay, so do you. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth, and he worshiped. He said, show me your glory. And God says, here's my attributes. And Moses falls before him in worship of the attributes of God, because God is declaring his name, his goodness, his grace, his mercy. That is his glory. And when Lazarus says, we saw His glory, he's not talking about the representation of that glory in light. He's not saying we saw this visible manifestation of light. He's talking about the reality of the attributes that were manifest through Christ as He ministered. We saw all those things the Lord listed back in Exodus 33 and 34. He's saying, we saw them in Yeshua. When Yeshua turned water into wine, He said, We saw His glory. This beginning of His signs, Yeshua did in Canaan of Galilee, manifesting His glory. And the disciples believed in Him. He's putting His attributes on display. He's manifesting His glory. But the ultimate display of Christ's glory took place at the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the exaltation. When Judas came out of the upper room to betray the Savior, John 13, 31 says this Yeshua said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him because the cross displayed God's perfect justice and perfect love like no other event. The glory that Lazarus and the other disciples observed as eyewitnesses referred to the God like characteristics of Yeshua. And Yeshua said, Have you seen me? You've seen the Father because I'm putting the Father on display. He says, the glory is of the only begotten from the Father. Now, let's talk about this word only begotten here for a while. This is the Greek word monogenes. It's used five times in the New Testament, all by John. Four times in the Gospel, once in 1 John. You're familiar with it probably in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His monogenes son. Now, if you remember, and I'm sure you do, back to our study of Genesis 6, 1-4, that talks about, and the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them. Well, we talked there about the sons of God are watchers. The sons of God are part of God's divine counsel. And if that's true, how can Lazarus say five times that Yeshua is the only begotten Son? How could Yeshua be the only divine Son when there are other sons of God? Bene Elohim. Job talks about the sons of God. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. The sons of God were there at creation shouting for joy as the creation came into being. So how does he say Yeshua is the only begotten when there are other sons? Well, the problem is this is just a bad translation. Okay, only begotten is a bad translation especially to our modern ears, I think. Not only does the translation, only begotten, seem to contradict the obvious statements in the talk about other sons of God, it implies that there was a time when the Son did not exist. He was begotten. You know, he wasn't there before, and then he got begotten. That he had a beginning. The word monogenes doesn't mean only begotten in some sort of birthing sense. The confusion extends from an old misunderstanding of the root of the Greek word. For years, monogonase was thought to have derived from two Greek terms, "monos," which means only, and ganao, which means to beget or to bear. And Greek scholars later discovered, now this is what's interesting, and especially about our time, discoveries are coming on the scene all the time. Archaeological discoveries... Back in I think it was 1936, they found Ugarit, the city of Ugarit, which was the closest kin to Israel, and they learned all kinds of things about languages, from you know, the, the tablets and stuff that they found there. so they're learning. Well, the Greek scholars discovered that the second part of monogonese doesn't come from the Greek verb Ganao, rather it comes from the noun genes, which means class or kind. So the term monogonese literally means one of a kind or unique now does that fit a little better in there in your understanding he's not just one of many sons of god this is the unique the one of a kind son of god without connotation to create creation or origin he's just this is unique now the word in greek was used "monogenes" was used of an only child we see that in luke 7 12 this is one of my favorite stories now, as he approached the, the gate of the city, the dead man was being carried out. The only son, the monogamous son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. You know the story. You know what happens, right? Yeshua stops it. Why does he do that? He's just putting on a show here. I think it's interesting that it tells us he's the only son. He's the monogamous son. The only son she has. And she's a widow. In that culture... Who to take care of her? Family. She had no family. She had lost her job, basically. She'd lost any means of care because her son was gone. So the Lord stops the coffin, get out of the coffin, take care of your mom. Oh, that is too cool. That is just awesome. I mean, the Lord's care for a widow, you know, that He raises His son and says, take care of your mama. Now, she's not a witch. now she has someone to care for her in that culture, someone to take care of her. Only begotten, monogenes. Luke uses monogonase of an only son in Luke 9.38 and of an only daughter in Luke 8.42. The writer of Hebrews uses the word of Isaac. Now think about this one. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, who he had received the promise, was offering up his only begotten son, monogenes son. So Isaac is called Abraham's monogonase. Now, if you know the story, you know he's not the only begotten son of Abraham, right? Abraham earlier fathered Ishmael. So the term doesn't mean that Isaac was Abraham's only son. It means he was his unique son because he was the son of covenant. Isaac's genealogy would be the one through whom the Messiah would come. Just as Yahweh is an Elohim and no other Elohim or Yahweh, so Yeshua is the unique son and no other sons are like him. So monogonase is one of a kind, unique the only one of its kind. There are no other son of God who is a son of God in the same way that Yeshua is the son of God. He's the only one. Listen, all others, there are other sons of God, but all other sons of God referred to in the scripture are either created or adopted. We're sons of God. We already saw that. All right. We are sons of God. We are adopted sons of God. The B'nai Elohim were sons of God. They were created beings. Yeshua is not a created being. He's the word who always existed with the Father. There's no there's no creation there. At a point in time he became human, took on human flesh, but he is the monoganae. So you know, Understanding that concept will help you. A lot of people want to use that term against Christ. See, he came into being at a point in time, he was born. You know, he, he became an, a, the son of God at a certain point, and that's not what that's talking about at all. All right. John goes on, full of grace and truth. The word full here is play race, which means he's complete. And the coupling of grace and truth here, again, I, I think John is following his Hebraic roots here. And I think he's using Hebrew terms. The Hebrew term hased means covenant love and loyalty. And the Hebrew term emet means trustworthiness. And these are used and expanded in John in uh, Exodus 34, 6. He says, Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassion and grace is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. This is the passage he's drawing from. And this is where he's getting these words from. Loving kindness is chased. Truth is emet. These words are used of Yahweh in this text right here. And in our text, they're used of Yeshua. Why? Because Yeshua is Yahweh. All right? Both words occur together in Proverbs 6.16. By loving kindness of truth, iniquity is atoned for. Love that. This describes Yeshua's character in Old Covenant terms. Full of grace and truth. This characterized the glory of God that Yeshua manifested. Grace in this context refers to graciousness or loving kindness. And truth means integrity or truthfulness. The incarnation was the greatest possible expression of God's grace to humankind. It was also the best way to communicate truth accurately to human understanding. They could relate to it. They were there. They watched Him. They experienced Him. Alright, let's move on. Verse 15. It says, John testified about him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. The word testified here, martureo, it means to be a witness. John the Baptist is one of seven witnesses listed in this book who testify or witness to Christ. Now, you know, seven is, you know, a perfect number, a number of completion, number of totality, So he is witnessing to this. The other witnesses we're going to find are Nathaniel, Peter, the blind man who was healed, Martha, Thomas, and Yeshua himself. Seven witnesses to who Christ is, to the deity of Christ. We have seven clear witnesses to the deity of Yeshua. And he says, he existed before me. He says, he who comes after me has a higher rank. You know, in that culture, if you were born first, you ranked higher. But he said, "Not this doesn't work this way. Remember that Elizabeth was pregnant with John six months before Yeshua, you know, came into being or was conceived. John was born first, six months first. But he said he existed before me. What he's doing, he's affirming Yeshua's preexistence, his deity. You're six months older than him. How can he exist before you? Because before Abraham was, he was right. Exactly. Exactly. Westcott pointed out that the reference here is not merely to relative priority, but absolute priority. In other words, the Word was not just formed prior to John the Baptist, but first in an absolute sense. He always existed. He always existed. Then as we come to verse 16, now now there's some controversy here from verses 16, 17, and 18. Some scholars believe this is still John the Baptist talking. All right? Um, Origin held that view, Luther held that view. Uh, a friend of mine Zane Hodges held that view. He took the view that fifteen through eighteen were words of John the Baptist. Most modern commentators take it that they 're the writer of the gospels all right John Elazar is writing these and, and i would I would go with that I, I think there's uh, verse sixteen seems to be explaining verse fourteen, which said that Yeshua is full of grace, so I believe that verses sixteen through eighteen are the words of Lazarus, John, John Lazar, okay, whoever you want to call the author of this book. I think this is him. I don't I think verse 15 is just like a, a parenthesis there. John the Baptist is given his witness. He says, For of his fullness we have all received. The word fullness here is pleroma. It means all the resources of Yahweh are present in Yeshua, which constitutes his fullness. Paul put it this way in Colossians. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in a bodily form. This is the definitive statement of Christ's deity. The fullness is defined by the word deity. The Greek word translated deity here is theates, it's an ontological word which means it has the idea of essential nature or essential being. The essential ontological nature of Yeshua is deity. He's God. The word fullness is from the Greek word pleroma and means the sum total, the fullness, the plenitude. Paul says all the fullness of deity, not a part of it, every bit of it, dwells in Christ. Yeshua is completely God. He's exactly what God is. He possesses the fullness of God, not certain aspects of God's essence, but all of it. Unbounded power, all the attributes of God. The fullness of God, the whole Godhead. And when we understand this, people, you understand that when you come to a point in your life when you trust Christ, the fullness of God, the whole Godhead becomes part of your life when you trust Yeshua. You get the Father, you get the Son, it's a package deal. You get the whole Trinity there on your side. Because, see, you have been united with Christ by faith. It's union. So guess what? Now you're part of that trinity because Christ is part of the trinity. It's incredible the more you think about it. And I think if we really understood who we are, we'd live differently. We'd live differently. Because we're sacred space. We're representing the Father. Everything we say, everything we do, we're representing the Father by our lives. And we're called to be holy representatives, faithful representatives. He says in the end of the verse here, grace upon grace. Now, this is interpreted in a couple different ways, all right? And the problem here is the preposition anti here. Some interpreters believe that John was saying grace follows grace, like an ocean, you know, like, like grace upon grace upon grace. You get these waves of grace. And the NIV kind of expresses that where it says one blessing after another. Um, New American here, grace upon grace. But another view is that the Greek preposition anti means instead of as it often does elsewhere. So grace instead of grace. Does that make any sense? (laughs) Okay, let me see if I can make it make sense. Okay? (laughs) Here, I think anti seems to mean that one thing is replaced and another thing is put in its place. Okay? According to this interpretation, John meant that God's grace through Yeshua replaces the grace that He bestowed through Moses When he gave the law. See, verse 17 seems to continue this thought, so it supports this interpretation. We'll look at 17 in a second, but he's talking about Moses in 17. So grace upon grace, grace replacing grace. John Chrysostom, one of the church fathers, saw this passage as giving testimony that the old covenant economy of salvation giving way to the new economy of grace through Christ. In Jewish sources, the law was regarded as a gift from God. So the law was grace. And what Lazarus here is saying simply is I think he's, he's ge- echoing the same thing that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. These are transitional saints. They're being transformed. Transformed from what? From the old covenant to the new covenant. And this, this whole context here of this verse is covenantal language from old to new. Now watch what he says. Into the same image From glory to glory. He's talking about old covenant glory? You're being transferred to new covenant glory. So in our text, it says grace to grace, but here it's glory to glory. The same thing. The law, in a sense, was an act of grace. Because the law pointed to the ultimate grace given in Yeshua. Paul called the law a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we'd be justified by faith. Now, he says in verse 17, for the law was given. See, that that really makes verse 16 make sense. Grace, instead of grace, the law was given through Moses. We understand that, right? Grace and truth were realized through Yeshua the Christ. You read that, it almost makes it sound like there was no grace, there was no truth in the law. Do you get that from that verse? It kind of sounds like that, but that's not what it's saying at all. All right? Yeshua is the full realization of grace and truth. Because the law was a shadow. Right? We see that in Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or in respect to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Wouldn't they do that constantly, judge one another in those respects? You ate what? You're not allowed to eat that. You know, you did what on on what day? You you know, they'd be constantly saying, no, don't let anybody judge you. Things, watch what he says about these things that are a uh, Mere shadow of what's to come. Now, all these terms, food and drink, that connects us back to Leviticus chapter 11 where they were told, here's what you can eat, here's what you can't eat. I thank God the prohibi- the prohibition against shellfish has been removed. Okay? I like some shellfish. And the prohibition against pork, I like some pork also, okay? Bacon's got to be the most favorite food in the world, Okay? But those are—they couldn't do that. Those are removed. Listen, those are gone. You can take your shellfish and wrap it in bacon and enjoy it, okay? Because those are gone. But that—that's what Israel was under, and that's what you know. This—he said when he talks about a, a new moon or a Sabbath, he's talking about their festival days. You know, those things were important to them. But those are gone. He is saying, the whole Levitical system was a shadow. Pointing to Christ. Now you know if you see a shadow, there's a reality casting the shadow. Okay, You don't have a shadow without a reality. There's a reality that's casting that shadow. But once you have the reality, you don't really care about the shadow anymore. The Old Covenant was a shadow. It was a type, it was an illustration of what Christ was to be. It spoke of His death, burial, and resurrection. His ascension. They just all pictured Him. But it always revealed something else was coming. The substance, he says, belongs to Christ. Now there may be a deliberate play on words here. Not only state the reality of shadows belonging to Christ, but the reality found in Christ, the body of Christ. The Greek word used here for substance is soma, which was often translated as body. So all the ceremony of the old covenant, the legalistic system, the Aaronic priests, or the tabernacle's furnishing, everything pointed forward to Christ. There were pictures. And parables of Christ. So as Lazarus says, grace and truth were realized through Yeshua. If it's our understanding of grace as hased, and God's constant covenant love, and truth as emet, God's integrity or truthfulness, if that's correct, then verse 17 notes that Christ has brought the fulfillment of old covenant expectations. He's brought all the fulfillment that was there. It's all fulfilled in Him. The Hebrew word that is being represented here, has has been called the agape of the Old Covenant. In Christ, we see God's constant fidelity, His steadfast love, regardless of our merit or worth. Yeshua is the full realization of God when the law only partially revealed Him. Paul put it this way. The law came in so the transgression would increase. Did it do that? Absolutely. Don't do this. Don't. I can't even keep up with these six hundred thirteen laws. I got to watch everything I do. You know, it increased transgression. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Yeshua the Christ, our Lord. Grace is realized in Yeshua. So here we have a contrast: laws given through Moses, grace and truth are realized. Full realization through Christ. There's a contrast between two ages here. You know, Moses' first plague in Egypt was turning water into blood. Christ's first miracle in John is what? Turning water to wine. (laughs) He turns it to blood. Christ turns it to wine. And we can enjoy it. Amen? As the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 7.22, So much more. Also, Yeshua has become the guarantee of a better covenant. So far better, people. So far better. He's a full embodiment of Torah, completing what was partial, but actually present in Torah. Yeshua thus embodies the hope of Judaism. And in following Him, the embodiment of Torah, His people fulfill the highest demands of Judaism. They're fulfilling what what they've called to do the whole time, because the the whole thing of Judaism was pointing to the Messiah. They were waiting for Him to come. And He came and they just missed it. He ends verse 17 by saying Yeshua the Christ. This is John's first use of the human name, Yeshua. Yeshua means Yahweh saves. Yeshua occurs 237 times in the Gospel, more than a quarter of the total 905 times it appears in the entire New Testament. And the compound Yeshua the Christ occurs, again, only in John 17.3. But Lazarus uses Christ 19 times more than any of the other gospel writers. Just a little bit of factual stuff there. You can put that in your whatever. Throw it out if you don't want. All right. Yeshua is the one who has manifested abundant grace and truth. And John is making it clear that the Word who was in the beginning with God, the Word who was God, and the Word who became flesh dwelt among us is none other than Yeshua the Messiah of Israel. Now, Lazarus has used the word grace three times in this prologue. He used it in verse 14, he used it in verse 16, he used it in verse 17. Big word in the Christian life, you know, especially when you understand what it means. But here's what's interesting. John will never use this word again. The rest of the gospel, not a, not, no grace is mentioned. I thought that's kind of interesting. The last time he uses it in verse 17, all right? The thought's always there, okay? But he doesn't use this word anymore. All right, verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. I think this verse is also drawn from our text in Exodus. In Exodus thirty-three twenty, 20, He says, You can't see My face. No one can see My face and live. So you see, He keeps going back and drawing on this text. No one has seen God at any time. You can't see My face and live. Well, does that sound right that no one's ever seen God? And if that's true, how come Isaiah said in Isaiah six one, "I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with his train and a robe filling the temple"? How does he say that if no one ever saw him? And this is a throne room vision in Isaiah. He sees the Lord. There's a lot of passages in Scripture that record different individuals seeing the Lord. Passages like Exodus twenty four state explicitly that some men have seen God. God showed up in what was it? Exodus? No, Genesis nineteen. Shows up with Abraham and they have dinner. God and two angels. So how does he say no one's ever seen? Let me give you here. Whenever anybody has seen Yahweh, it was Yahweh the Son. The second person of the Trinity. That's who they see. Look at John 6.46. Not that anyone has seen the Father. Except the one who is from God, he has seen the Father. So Yeshua makes clear, no one's ever seen the Father, so the the visible representation of God is the second person. It's Yeshua. In John 14, 9, he says, Yeshua said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? So the Son's the visible member of the Trinity. But I think Calvin is right when commenting on this verse. He says this. When he says that no one has seen God, it is not to be understood of the outward seeing of the physical eye. He means that since God dwells in inaccessible light, He cannot be known except in Christ, His living image. In other words, no one has ever seen the essence of God. The full manifestation of His deity. I think that's the meaning here. You can't see that. No one has seen it. And then he says this, the only begotten God. Only begotten here, monogenes. You know what that means, right? Unique, all right? One of a kind, unique. Now, what's strange about this phrase? The only begotten God. You would think that would say only begotten Son, right? (laughs) And that's how Young's puts it. He puts it the only begotten Son. So which is it? Is it God or Son? Why the differences? Well, the ancient manuscripts of the New Testament vary among themselves in many places, and so we have the science of textual criticism, where textual critics critics labor to try to figure out what was what was in this original text, what was there. See, we don't have any original manuscripts; we got copies, and they didn't Xerox them, so it wasn't the exact same thing they used. You know, they're copying these little guys sitting in the talk, you know in a room, you know, copying one word after the other. Alright. So they're trying to figure out, and really we know the places where the, the text, there's difference. We know that. So, you know, we have some idea where discrepancies are. But when they were doing these copies, the names for deity and common terms like sun and god and spirit were often abbreviated in ancient manuscripts. I mean, they're, they're doing this over and over by hand, so they would do abbreviation to kind of save themselves a little bit of work. And so the word sun, is the word weos. It ends with the omicron and sigma, the O-S. The word God is theos, and as you can tell, it ends with the same omicron and sigma. When those words were abbreviated, there were simply two letters, usually with the line placed above to indicate an abbreviation. And the only difference between these two words was one letter, the first letter. All right, so all you had to do was make a slight mistake, and you got a different word there. So it's possible that an early scribe, having only begotten son, mistook it and wrote only begotten God. Or it's possible that it said only begotten God and he mistook it for only begotten son. But here's the thing. And scholars are pretty much agreement on this. It's much more likely that the original text said only begotten God. Because that's much more unusual. It would be rare for a scribe to see only begotten son and change it to God. But if he saw only begotten God, he could say, well, that was wrong. Let me put son in here. Cause you know, we know the only begotten son. It just fits better. So, so they would have done that. They would have stuck in that. You know, maybe thinking of John 3.16. So they stuck son in there instead. Fortunately, in this case, it doesn't make any difference. <laughs> it really doesn't. Because the only begotten son, of the eternal God is obviously God Himself because He possesses a nature of deity. But on the other hand, if only begotten God is the reading, and I think it is, then it's a very striking direct statement of the deity of the Lord Yeshua. He's the only begotten God and He is in the bosom of the Father. This is a Hebrew idiom expressing an intimate relationship. This relationship is used of a child and a parent, of a friend to a friend. It's used in numbers to describe a child's relationship with his mother. In Deuteronomy 13, of a husband's relationship with his wife. In Luke 16, of Lazarus' fellowship with Abraham in heaven. He says, he has explained him. The Greek word here is exegeomai, from which we get the word exegete. It means to explain, to interpret, to give the meaning. So the Son has exegeted the Father. The Son has explained Him. He has interpreted He has narrated the Father to humankind. You want to know about Yahweh? Yeshua exegetes Yahweh. You want to know about your God? Read the Gospels. Get real familiar with them. And watch your God in action. He displays his glory. He dispenses grace. He defines Yahweh. Now, John Elazar ends this prologue just as he began with a reference to Yeshua's deity, and closing an inclusio that began in verse one. So these two verses bracket; they make this inclusio. He begins by saying the word was with God, and he concluded by saying. In the bosom of the Father. He's with Him. He's in the bosom. Both of these distinguish Him. Listen. They distinguish Him from the Father. They're not the same person. He's with God. They're not the same person. He's in the bosom of the Father. They're not the same person. Okay? But He says, He goes on to say, the Word was God. And He ends by saying, the only begotten God, forming an inclusio around the deity of Christ. People, if you haven't gotten anything out of this prologue, I hope you got that Yeshua is Yahweh. He is a divine being. And I don't even want to hear the nonsense that people come up with, well, Yeshua was just a man. Then you're dead in your sins if He was just a man. That's not an option. It's not an option. And... We saw in this text, it's only to those who believe in His name that He gives the right to be children of God. And to believe in His name is to believe in who He is in His character and His attributes. And if you think He's only a man, you're not believing in Him. You're not believing in His name because He is not a man. He is a theanthropic person. He is the God-man. And because He's God... His life carries infinite value before the Father, and because he's human, he represents us in humankind. And he takes our sin and he wipes it away. No man could ever do that; only the God Man can do that. The deity of Christ just hammered throughout this text, and I get so many people say, "I just don't know about the deity." Of Christ. Read your Bible. I mean, it's it's in the Tanakh, it's in the New Testament, it's everywhere because it's so important. He's not some prophet. Of God who came on the scene. And again, the, the confusion comes from not understanding the hypostatic union. Christ says, I'm hungry. See, they say, see, he's just a man. He's hungry. He's a theanthropic. He's a God man. And the man part of him is hungry. The God part's not hungry. Okay? But the man part is hungry. Theanthropic person. Incarnation. Hypostatic union. Hopefully he got all those down. Those are really important because we're talking about the character of our God. And it's important that you understand that when someone comes along and tries to tell you, oh, Yeshua is just a man, then you can set them straight through the Word of God. Or if not, you can't. maybe you can't set them straight, but at least in your own mind, you're straight. You know what you believe because it's important. It's important. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your Word. Thank you, Lord, that we made it through this prologue, just getting started in this wonderful gospel. Lord, I pray that as we go through and see the different signs, see our Lord walk on the face of the earth and deal with people, Lord, I pray we would see His glory. That You would open our heart and our minds to the glory of the living God as He walks among men. Father, thank You for the great privilege we have to study Your Word. Amen.